Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A tale of two cities as the BRICS meet in Johannesburg and the central bankers in Jackson Hole, while rates just keep going up all around the world. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, Afsani Beshlas of Rock Creek on the BRICS searching for a new engine for economic growth. These new countries that got added, they account for very little in terms of economic power. Dan Tarullo of Harvard on new limits on the banks. These banks really are facing, I think, a real challenge to their business model over the medium term. And Eric Cantor of Molis on what all the new issuance is doing to yield on government bonds. At some point, you will reach a, a mark in which, you know, investors say, well, how much more are you going to pay me to keep borrowing like this? This week, Global Wall Street had to keep an eye on two very different events some 10,000 miles apart. In Johannesburg, the so-called BRICS countries held their annual summit, seeking to re-inject some economic growth through a range of initiatives. We need to fully leverage the role of the new development bank, push forward reform of the international financial and the monetary systems, and increase the representation and voice of developing countries. And while the BRICs were searching for growth, Chair Powell led central bankers out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in search of some clarity, maybe even steadiness, in the quest to keep growth going, but still get inflation under control. We are prepared to raise rates further, if appropriate, 
and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down toward our objective. Regularities are no longer regular, and we have more irregularities than regularities. We cannot exclusively rely on inflation outlook as determined by models. But there was also a lot going on in between Johannesburg and Jackson Hole, as reports came in midweek that Mr. Prigozhin's private plane had gone down northwest of Moscow on what just happened to be the two-month anniversary of his mutiny against President Putin. In Washington, the SEC came out with its new disclosure rules for hedge funds and private equity firms. Increase fee disclosure for hedge funds and private equity firms. This is a $17 trillion industry. And all across the country, people took a hard look at mortgage rates over 7.3% and decided they could wait as mortgage applications fell to their lowest since 1995. On the other hand, owners of NVIDIA didn't have to worry much about high mortgage payments as they saw the AI chipmaker come out with yet another gangbuster set of numbers and predictions on just how high the sky might be. This was a historic guidance that we saw from the godfather of AI, Jensen, NVIDIA. And although tech gave up some of the NVIDIA gains on Thursday, the Nasdaq by the end of the week was up a robust 2.26%. The S&P 500 didn't do quite as well, adding eight-tenths of a percent, ending the week at 44.05. That's just over 100 points above the median number our Bloomberg L's project for the end of the year. And the yield on the 10-year stayed reasonably flat, adding just over two basis points, leaving it at 4.23%. Take us through the news in the markets this week. We welcome now Scott Cronert. He's City U. U.S. equity strategist and Lori Calvacina, RBC Capital Markets head of U.S. equity strategy. Welcome to both of you. Great to have you, Laura. Let me start with you first of all. What were the big stories in the markets this week from your point of view? So look, I think it was big tech earnings. I was out marketing, seeing clients this week. I couldn't get out of a meeting without having a debate um, over a certain company. And then also, I think Jackson Hole was the other one. Um, and I would say, look, with Jackson Hole, I don't think there were any big surprises there. But I do think it was good to get that event out of the way. What about Jackson Hole from your perspective? Perspective, Scott. Uh, did you hear anything that surprised you? Did anything that might change where the markets are headed? Well, I, I think what uh, Chairman Powell gave us was a uh, continuation of an ongoing theme that he's going to stay the course on on his focus on inflation and, and wants to see the path to 2% very clearly. In the meantime, um, I think the question that continues to come up with many clients and investors is, so how do I think about interest rates breaking through 10% on the 10-year and moving through 4.2% or higher? And so there the discussion very quickly goes from, okay, we get it, Fed funds probably higher for longer. How do I think about longer-term interest rate trends, and how does that affect the valuation paradigm on U.S. equities? Scott, I think one of the things we heard from Jay Powell on Friday was we, we're not sure where we're going. We're, as they say, data-dependent. It depends on how the numbers come in. So uh, what do you advise clients if, uh, on the one hand, it's 4.5% yield on the 10-year versus 3.5%? I mean, that's 1%, but it could make a real difference in the value of stocks. The easy answer for me is that we look for pullbacks to be more opportunistic getting long U.S. equities going into a fairly robust target for the end of this year uh, at 4,600 and our mid-year target for next year, 5,000. So we're looking at any 
market pullback as a function of valuation compression around um, the rate discussion as ultimately a buying opportunity. As we think under the surface, the S&P 500 is probably less connected to the aggregate U.S. economy than most expect. And in that regard, earnings become a more important driver. And there we're, we're table pounding bullish in terms of, of how corporate America is contending with the, uh, the macro influences right now. Lori, we have a rare opportunity here tonight because we have not one but two Bloomberg Owls present in you <laughs> and Scott. And he just mentioned he's at 4,600 year end uh, this year. Uh, you're at 4,250, right? And the 4,300 is the median. Is there much difference between the 4,600 and the 4,250? And what might push you to the lower number? So we're, we're basically at the median right now. And that's also basically the average of six different models that we run. And our most bullish model gets us up to 4,800 on the S&P. That's looking at where we think valuations could be and our earnings forecast. But the real drag on our model, I would say, is actually our cross-asset indicators, which look at stocks relative to bonds. Now, that was a reason to be bearish at the beginning of the year, but we did see some improvement on those models in the second quarter. What we've seen recently with this move up in bond yields is that those models are rapidly getting more or less favorable for equities, more of a pressure point, and we are actually starting to see money flows come out of the U.S. equity market as well. That was just my question, because you've always, Lori, been telling us, you know, we really need to be in equities. People are underrating equities. But are you starting to see flows? It is substantial right now as the bonds become more attractive with those yields. So what's interesting is that to start the year, everyone said, okay, bonds are more attractive than equities. And we did see money flow go into bonds. And then we actually saw in the second quarter money come back into U.S. equities as it was being pulled out of Europe. So there was an international dynamic that helped the U.S. equity market. Um, but what we are seeing now is that we're getting to a point in the year where these flow trends tend to fade a bit. You're seeing those European equity flows stabilize. And that money is actually coming specifically out of the growth part of the market. And that's pulling the overall U.S. equity flows down. Scott, one of the things that may keep people into equities is earnings. Where are you on earnings right now? What do you think about the season we've just been through? And what are you looking at in 2024? So the change with Q2 earnings was that in, in, in comparison to Q1, we, we saw earnings for the full year move higher post Q1, but you didn't see too much in the out quarter um, uh, side of the equation. With Q2, we began to see an upper revision bias to Q3 and Q4. We think at this point, the 23 earnings at around 220 are more or less dialed in. But where we think this is headed is that as we work through either economic slowing or mild recession, the path is still for higher earnings as we move into 2024. And we're on the more bullish side of the outlook for 2024, looking for roughly 245 of earnings. There are some sector differences in here that influence the way this year versus next year play out. And so we're looking for a, let's call it less dispersed sector setup as, a, as an underlying driver of a earnings acceleration into 2024. Laura, do you see some sector differences as you look into 2024? So what we've seen for next year is that if you look at the change in the anticipated growth rates on earnings, I believe it's healthcare and energy are the two that have actually seen some upward revisions recently to that year specifically. And those have actually been two of the better performing sectors in August in the U.S. equity market for the S&P specifically. So you are seeing investors pay attention to that kind of issue. I think the other thing, though, to keep in the back of your mind on 2024 earnings is that inflation is anticipated to moderate. I think this will affect energy and health care less. But as that happens, our model actually shows it's a drag on revenue. So we think there could be some earnings pressures people need to get prepared for. Inflation may moderate, but we heard Scott say there may be a, a slowdown or even a recession in 2024. That's still a possibility. Uh, do you think earnings will hold up in that situation? I think there are a lot of cross currents, but we have found that revenues in S&P earnings um, are really dictated by two things, inflation 
inflation and GDP trends. So I do think it will be tough if we do see, you know, sort of the recession just pushed into 2024. I think that ends up being another challenge to earnings that's hard to get around. Scott, how much attention do you pay to the GDP? Because you, you know the GDP numbers coming in, some of the numbers are really extraordinary, four, five plus percent at this point. Do you believe those numbers and how much does that affect your advice? I think that the correlation of earnings to GDP is certainly high and an important element. I think we have to look at correlation alongside leverage or beta to GDP. <clears throat> and there I'd be a little bit differentiated in terms of the way we break the S&P down. It's essentially into three clusters, growth, cyclicals, and defensives. Our growth cluster is roughly 40% of the S&P. So almost by definition, it should be less economic sensitive. Defensives, we know, are defensive for a reason. They're less economic sensitive. So that leaves your 30% of the market that we characterize as cyclicals that ought to be more exposed and leveraged to GDP. Okay, Lori Calvacina and Scott Croner will be staying with us as we turn to new paradigms for the markets in the wake of the great financial crisis and, by the way, that pandemic. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Central bankers gathered in Jackson Hole this week to take a broader and longer-term look at the economy and their approaches to monetary policy, which raises the question whether overall we're facing something of a paradigm shift after the traumas of the great financial crisis and then the pandemic. Scott Cronin of Citi and Lori Calvacina of RBC Capital Markets have stayed with us to give us the market's perspective on where we may be headed. So, Scott, let me start with you on this paradigm shift, overused term, but it may well apply here. We've had the yep. paradigm since the great financial crisis, and then we had to respond to the pandemic. Where are we headed next? 
Well, I want to focus on two elements of this, David. So I think first is regarding interest rates, which is, continues to be an elephant in the room, and we've talked about this in the context of valuations. But what we have to remember is that, yes, we've been in a certain interest rate regime in the post-GFC time frame, but when you go back and look historically, it's fascinating. The correlation between nominal and 10-year yields and S&P performance has varied by decade going back to the 60s. So we do have to be all eyes open that as we move forward from here, higher for long rates may be part of the investment landscape, and that's just an important element to keep a focus on as we look for the impact of rates on equity valuations. Now, the offset of that is growth drivers, and we do have a, a new sheriff in town, if you will, with AI. Over the past decade, we've had, we've had focus on areas such as cloud computing as a driver of productivity. Going forward, enter AI. We definitely think there are going to be companies within the S&P 500 that have a very real revenue and earnings benefit from AI, but more broadly and perhaps more important is under the surface, we think the productivity enhancement that can come to the broader industrial economy is really fascinating to us. It has us structurally overweight industrials, and it has us very focused on this notion that as corporate America is better able to real-time manage their business models, courtesy of technology, you may implicitly lower the economic sensitive bias to the underlying index. So Scott and Laura, I must say, you have something of an ally here in Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, who's a special contributor here. I talked to him earlier today, and one of the things he emphasized was possible a paradigm shift in the Fed fund rates and exactly what's going on with interest rates. This is part of what he had to say. You may see the Fed funds rate uh, have to go up once or even more than that uh, over the next few, uh, few months. Uh, I think that there is an underappreciation in general of the fact that substantially enlarged government budget deficits means substantially more absorption of saving, means substantially more demand, and all of that means that the neutral interest rate is increased and is increased now and in the future. So, Lori, let me turn to you. To what extent do you agree with Larry? And if so, what does it mean for your clients? So I would say on you know the issue of the neutral rate, one of the things our rate strategist pointed out today that was that Powell seemed to kind of punt on that yeah. issue and say we don't really know what it is um, and kind of squirm out of it a little bit. Um, I have some sympathy for that. But I will say, as I talk to investors, I'm not quite so sure. I think this notion is completely un unappreciated. I talk to mostly equity folks, and I think they are very much of the opinion that we do have have to brace ourselves for higher interest rates, uh, you know, not a Fed sitting at zero, essentially, um, propping everything up with the balance sheet. Um, and also associated with that, frankly, they're looking for, you know, a higher run rate on inflation. So I was also, you know, struck today by Chairman Powell's comments mm -hmm. of really, you know, kind of reinforcing the idea of the 2% target, because frankly, a lot of the equity folks I talk to think maybe it should be a little bit higher. In a word, is AI going to bail us out? Scott thinks it may help us. Look, I think that AI is a positive driver. I agree with what a lot of what he said. I view it as another productivity enhancing tool, not necessarily something that's going to completely change things. But I do think, you know, it's an important uh, component of the idea that we do need to get used to a new world. And whether that's, you know, more technological innovation or reinvigorating the old economy, the reindustrialization theme, I think is another paradigm shift we're going through, really reversing globalization. I think it's all part of the same ball of wax. And then there's a question of when it comes, <laughs> when we get that productivity gain. Many thanks to Lori Calvacina of RBC Capital markets and Scott Cronert of City.
higher rates for longer seems to be the order of the day. But how much higher and for how much longer? And what will these higher rates mean for things like deal making, which was already struggling to come back? For some answers to these questions, welcome now back Eric Cantor. He's vice chairman at Molis and Company. Mr. Cantor earlier served from Virginia in the US Congress, including as House Majority Leader. So Eric, thank you so much for being on Wall Street. We really appreciate it. David, it's a pleasure to be here. So now you're on Wall Street, having been uh, back down on the Capitol. Give us a sense of where the rates are and where they're headed. Well, I mean, listen, I, th I think uh, many would say that the days of free money are over and that we are no longer going to see sort of the benefit of that and perhaps be paying the price for that. But there's no question that now we are seeing real interest rates now um, uh, exist and the cost for borrowing has gone up. Uh, and, you know, from a deal-making perspective, I think what we would like to see uh, from Olis's perspective is a little bit more certainty, you know, uh, you know, people project, well, is there going to be a soft landing? Is there going to be a recession? I mean, from our standpoint, it's about the Fed reaching a point where you can gain some certainty uh, with the rate hikes. And the Fed keeps saying they're data dependent. It depends on what the data are, what comes in, what they're going to do. One point of data that seems not to be up for debate is how much money the U.S. government's going to have to borrow, the issuance of treasuries, because that certainly is a factor on what happens to the rates. The more you have to issue, the more interest you have to pay. Well, there's, there's no question. And as we know, we went right up, the country went right up to the edge in terms of the debt ceiling, which caused the coffers to really empty out, which has now caused the federal uh, government to have to incur, you know, an incredible amount, over a trillion dollars of issuances, I think, since that uh, sort of standoff in Washington. So, I, you know, look, David, I think that certainly you could look at some of the auctions that have taken place. Some haven't gone as well as expected, but most by far have gone very well. I don't think the federal government has a problem in borrowing right now. But at some point, you will reach a, a mark in which, you know, investors say, well, you know, is how much more are you going to pay me to keep borrowing like this? And that's the point you don't want to get to. Uh, and, I, and I think from a deal-making perspective, again, it gets back to the point of certainty. When are we going to see uh, the ability for this country uh, to have policies in place to grow at a quicker rate than the debt is growing. And that's ultimately the goal. Right now, we're seeing projections, for example, coming out of the Congressional Budget Office suggesting that because of just the increase we've already seen in the rates, our interest payments are going to be much, much higher. It's going to add a fair amount to that debt that we have to service. At some point, it starts to crowd out other things that we would be doing with the money. So I, I think I think this is um, the accurate um, statistics that the interest cost has gone up over 35% over the past year. We are going to reach a point maybe in tw uh, fiscal year 24 or 25 that the federal government's interest bill will be as much as what the federal government funds the Pentagon with. I mean, that's a really daunting thought. Uh, and so we can't sustain that. You know, there's a great sort of stat in history when you look at the interest bill for the federal government on an annual basis. When you look at it in 2000, it was $223 billion. If you look at it in 2015, it was $223 billion. And you have to sort of ask yourself, well, why is that? Because, in fact, during that period of time, there was $9.7 trillion of additional debt incurred. How in the world are you paying the same amount of interest? It's because rates have been so low. And so, again, that's not sustainable. And that's 
that's when I say again, uh, we're going to have to do something about this. And that's why I think the markets, too, are now looking to see longer term while the 10, 10 year um, has gone up so much. Eric, it's really great to have you on. Thank you so much for the time. That is Eric Cantor of Molus and Company. Coming up, the group that was supposed to challenge the economic supremacy of the G7 nations. We'll talk with Asani Beschlitz of Rock Creek about the BRICS meeting in Johannesburg this week and what we learned. Xi really, really needed a major breakthrough this week. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, a group of countries with fast-growing economies that are expected to dominate the world by 2050. It is a club of, um, of uh, you know, nations that have the same outlook in terms of how the world should look in terms of multilateral cooperation. And they have grown fast, accounting for just over 20% of global GDP when first discussed back in 2001. They've shot up to over a third and are projected to be over 40% by 2040, while the G7 has gone the other way, from over 40% down to 30% today. What started out as simply a way of thinking about investments has turned into a more formal arrangement among governments, holding annual summits, this year in Johannesburg, where they decided to expand their membership from 5 to 11. We have decided to invite the Argentine Republic, the Arab Republic of Egypt, the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates to become full members of BRICS. 
But as much as they may consider themselves a group, the five countries in the BRICS are pursuing very different economic paths, with China being the outstanding growth leader over the last 20 years, as observed this week by Jim O'Neill, the person at Goldman behind the original idea of the BRICS. Economically, uh, the only reason why the group is that interesting, frankly, is because, of course, China. Though China shows signs of giving up its economic leadership. The second big problem they have is Xi, who has, uh, who has reasserted his control over the economy, who many of my, our investors that we talk to there feel doesn't really even understand economics. While Russia and South Africa have fallen behind, the first in the aftermath of the war in Ukraine, and the second facing a wide range of problems. President Ramaphosa has been in uh, lots of international meetings looking for ways to uh, pull the country forward. Leaving it largely to India to drive the BRICS forward, despite some disappointment in the past. A line that I've always repeated about India is that this is a country that has consistently disappointed the optimists and the pessimists. So the last few years, it has clearly disappointed the pessimists uh, because it's done much better than what the worst forecasts were. Now, I think that we just have to be careful that India doesn't follow its past pattern and disappoint the optimists as well. When it comes to emerging markets, particularly the BRICS, there's nobody who knows it quite as well as Afsani Beshlis of Rock Creek. And we welcome her back now to Wall Street Week. Afsani, thanks so much for being back with us. So it turned out to be a fairly eventful meeting in Johannesburg as they decided to go from five members to 11 members. Were you surprised? And what do you think brought this about? So David, um, I think uh, President Xi really, really needed a major breakthrough this week. And, um, and with everything that we saw that is going on, almost 10 billion leaving, uh, leaving the markets in China in over j just the last uh, few weeks, you have consumers not, not really buying into consuming in China. You have the real estate uh, problems. Um, you have growth rates down. You have youth unemployment. He had everything going wrong. So this meeting could not have been at the worst time. And he really worked hard to convince the other members, including Modi and Brazil, to, uh, uh, to agree to this extension. And it seems like the timing was good for India. You know, India did manage to, uh, to be the fourth country that uh, landed um, on moon uh, this week, uh, while Russia uh, actually could not land on moon, um, even though it had been an early, early um, uh, uh, player in space. So, so I think India felt comfortable that it may not necessarily be in a weak position in this grouping. So that's, I think, how the various uh, leaders got to agree to have these uh, six new countries, uh, which are a rather mishmash of countries to, to join the new groupings. Well, let me ask about uh, that mismatch. Uh, let me ask about that mismatch because uh, I don't know, by the way, what they're going to call it when they admit these countries, assuming that they do. There's some formalities or something. But, but when it was created back by Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs, it was a way of looking at the fastest growing economies, a group of them. There were four originally, later added five, as an investment matter, where to invest. What is this new entity now? Because as you say, it is a mismatch. It doesn't fit together the way when Jim O'Neill created it. 
Absolutely. And I think Jim, um, you know, in 2001, when he created it, he was absolutely right. These countries were growing so fast. Uh, they were really changing uh, direction hugely. We saw poverty go down in China. We saw uh, poverty go down a little bit uh, in India. We saw a major, major change among the largest economies, which was sort of the BRIC and then the S got added to BRICS with South Africa. And if you look at actual market um, terms, um, I think the S&P was up about 420% if we go back to 2001 when he coined the term. And uh, EM was up maybe around 403%. So, you know, pretty much in line with uh, the rest of the market. Things changed a lot by the time that the actual organization got set up in 2006 and then really uh, started going downhill, particularly because of China, uh, Russia and, um, and South Africa's uh, returns being so, so negative. So now, you know, you went from a group that had some cohesion in terms of economic growth to a group even before the six got added that have really very little to do with each other economically. And the six uh, countries that got added include three oil producers. And then you have Egypt, you have Ethiopia, and, and you know, these are countries that are, and, uh, and Argentina, again, countries that do not necessarily have very much in common with each other, except maybe grievance uh, against the West in some form or other. And, um, and moving forward, like you said, it will be interesting to see what name they come up with, but it's much more of a geopolitical um, group versus what Jim really was talking about, which was an economic block. Well, let's focus on what Jim was originally focusing on. With the addition of these new countries, uh, does it make the countries, any of them, more investable? Does it address some of the issues you've already mentioned for President Xi? Does it give, make his economy stronger at all to have this expanded BRICS? First of all, you know, you're going from a group of countries, this five um, account for close to uh, about a third of the world's purchasing power parity. If you know, go, we go with PPP. They account for about a third of um, of of uh, of uh, global PPP. But if you look at these um, new countries that got added, they account for very little in terms of economic power. So so they're not really bringing in. They're bringing in a lot of uh, population, but again, not the largest countries necessarily, in terms of uh, population and consumers. Uh, you know, one country, uh, namely Iran, has its own sanctions and troubles. And what we saw already with Russia being part of this entity, the BRIC bank uh, that is trying to lend kind of anemically to the bloc was not able to help Russia in its time of need. So it is not clear that this grouping is really functioning very well economically. Asani, as you suggest, most economists I've heard from are skeptical about the U.S. dollar losing its position as a reserve currency. But is there something other than that that might be almost as a trading currency that this sort of conglomeration of countries could move toward, that they would trade in their own currencies? I guess that's one of the things they're studying, right, to have a common currency. I think they certainly are looking at the common currency, uh, digital currency, um, a number of different options. 
I think that if we look at it very carefully, these countries are so disparate from each other. There is, I see very little likelihood that India would want to have a common currency with China, for example. India is setting up one of the most sophisticated payment systems inside of India. In fact, some countries are working with India because its AI-generated pay payment systems are extending even to its own rural uh, population. The question of India moving away to give that sort of power up to become, to have one common currency with this group, I think, is very unlikely. Afsani, it's always so good to have you on. Really appreciate your time. That's Afsani Bechelis of Rock Creek. Coming up, students may be having trouble covering the cost of tuition, but what about the $20,000 they may need for their sorority rush outfit? That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Wall Street Week notes the passing this week of one of its stalwarts, Laszlo Bini. He was one of the program's chief elves for years, earning him a place in the Wall Street Week Hall of Fame for his stock predictions, something in which he took great pride. As of uh, today, we have the ninth best year in history. And, uh, you know, I think that no one would have expected this year to be the top ten. So I think we've had a pretty good year. And Louis Ruckheiser showed his appreciation on the program whenever Laszlo Barini joined him on the air. As it happens, we have with us tonight one of only two of our chief elves who are still, bu still bullish on this market, meaning that they expect the Dow six months from now to be at least 100 points higher than it is tonight. He's Laszlo Barini, and the operative question is, why is this man smiling? We lost a Wall Street Week legend this week when Lonzo Barini died at the age of 79. Finally, one more thought. An investment in knowledge always pays the best interest. So wrote Benjamin Franklin in The Way to Wealth in 1758. And these days, it better pay a pretty good rate of interest, given the amount of investments some schools are asking for. We all know about the level of student debt, something President Biden tried to address with a debt forgiveness plan struck down by the Supreme Court. I know there are millions of Americans, millions of Americans in this country who feel disappointed and uh, discouraged, or even a little bit angry about the course decision today on student debt. But as much trouble as some middle-class students may have paying for their college, there are others who don't appear to need much help at all, even for high school. Take, for example, students at the prestigious Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, who will soon enjoy a new dining hall built just for them for a mere $89 million, financed conveniently with municipal bonds. But then again, Deerfield students pay a mere $70,000 a year to attend, more than 100 grand less than the students at the ultra-exclusive Institute auf dem Rosenberg in Switzerland, for which you'll pay $175,000 a year, with meals prepared by chefs from Michelin-starred restaurants, physical therapists on call, and a fleet of Audi e-trons to drive. As Town & Country reports, the head of the school justifies the tuition simply, saying, we like excellence, and that comes at a price. Not clear whether that price includes using cell phones. We're only allowed mobiles on weekends. How am I supposed to call my therapist? 
It isn't just the elite prep schools attracting all that money these days. We sort of expect that the Harvards and the Yales attract big contributions from alums. Though former Harvard president Larry Summers told us that wasn't the reason he's opposed to so-called legacy admissions. MIT has long been without legacy admissions and it seems to do very well financially. But the big bucks aren't just going to the Ivies anymore. McPherson College in McPherson, Kansas may have just 800 students, but it just got a $1 billion anonymous donation. And I'll tell you, I for one am a big fan. McPherson offers the only four-year Bachelor of Science degree in the country in restoring classic cars, like this 1953 Mercedes-Benz 300S that students restored for the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance. And not all of the money being spent on students these days is going for what you'd call traditional education. There's a good deal being invested in the phenomenon known as the sorority rush, most particularly the rush as experienced at the University of Alabama. Now, there, there's nothing new about the ritual of rushing fraternities and sororities, but what is new is pledges at Bama have taken to TikTok to show off their outfits for the big event including brand details that lets one TikToker provide us all with a detailed accounting of how much these young co-eds are spending, like this one. My necklace is David Yerman. These are E. Newton. David Yerman, David Yerman. That outfit, including accessories, totals up to just under $6,000, way below some others, which reach up to over 20 grand, which may cause some of us to ask where all that money is coming from. But maybe these Bama, these <laughs> Bama the students are, are not the, the aspirational consumer. Maybe they're the, you know, their parents are paying for it. A hundred, oh gosh, I hope so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I'm 18 and can get a 20,000 Cartier, like, rock on. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.